0: at FBCAA.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right, now it's time for Mr. Nelson to come and share with us his reading in the Word of God. So we'll bring him right up here. Thanks, Drew.
1: All right, we're going to be in uh, Romans chapter 8 tonight, please. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit the things of the spirit for to be carnally minded is death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead. Because of sin, but the spirit is life, because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he would raised, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit, who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with uh, perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, These he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is is God who justifies who is he who condemns it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us who shall separate us I'm sorry who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written for your sake We are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our
0: Lord. I welcome you to turn in your Bibles to 1st Timothy chapter 2 this evening. 1st Timothy chapter 2, we pick up where we left off um, last time, which is in verse 8. We looked at verses 1 to 7 uh, during Sunday morning, uh, two weeks ago now, and uh, we had actually covered that a while back, but we came back to that passage in our study of 1st Timothy, and so I decided to teach it again and try out to try to draw out some more application. And for those who didn't hear it the first time, uh, give them an opportunity to learn something from that passage. But this evening, we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Now, verses 8 to 15 are really one whole section, but there's enough here, I think, that we can uh, just focus on a subsection for this evening, and then we'll look at the, the latter half of this of this section next time, which is verses 11 to 15. Now we know as we try to keep in mind the whole kind of uh, issue going on in the church in Ephesus, which is where Timothy is at at this moment when Paul is writing to him and sending this letter to him. We know that false teaching was disrupting the unity of the church in Ephesus. We learned that in verse 3 of chapter 1. And such uh, false teaching was was a demonstration of, uh, or it consisted of uh, speculative thinking and disputes about matters unimportant to the work of God. It was not promoting love. It had no spiritual value in it. Whereas the instructions Paul gave had significant spiritual value as they were given to develop genuine Christian love, that flows from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Verse 5 of chapter 1 tells us this. In the lives of believers in the church, Timothy was appointed to the task of instructing the brethren in pure doctrine and proper conduct in the church. Just look with me for a moment at chapter 4, verse 6. Paul writes to Timothy here, and he says this, If you instruct the brethren in these things, that is everything that is come before this point and and also include what comes later on if you instruct the brethren in these things you will be a good minister of jesus christ nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine which you have carefully followed so the idea here is that the uh timothy's timothy's uh his uh commands were to instruct them in these matters and if he does this he does well also if you look with me at um Verse 13 of the same chapter, chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says this to Timothy, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. These were all important things that Timothy was to be doing in the church for the benefit of not just himself, though it would benefit him, but for the benefit of the church that they would be receiving things of spiritual value, unlike that which the false teachers were pushing on the church, which was only causing disputes. Now, first and foremost, as we go back to the uh, second chapter here, Paul commands that believers pray for all men. He has now moved on from describing what this false teaching is and correcting them about the use of the law And now he's moving to how the church is to properly conduct themselves when they gather, men and women alike. And we saw in verses 1 to 7 that Paul commands that all believers pray for all men, making supplication for them in order that there be spiritual benefits for them, that they be able to live quiet and peaceable lives, to live out their life in a way that is pleasing in God's sight and in a way that only furthers the gospel uh, impact in the society around them. And so Paul commands them to pray. Prayer is powerful and, and can influence our society for the good of believers, we said, and, and uh, improve the, the livelihood of all men, for that matter. If Paul states that this is of utmost importance, then we took from this that we should take seriously the practice of prayer. Paul mentions it first for a reason in a series of commands, and so we ought not to neglect that practice of praying for all men. I encourage us and exhort us in that way. There's opportunities to do that, of course, in private prayer. But again, Paul's, the context here is the local church, so we ought to think in in, uh, ways in which we can fulfill this command uh, corporately. We do that in part on Wednesday evenings during prayer time. We also do that on Saturdays uh, with a subset of the, the, the church with the men. And of course, we also have uh, the pastoral prayer on Sunday morning. But we could have other opportunities. We could create other opportunities. You could get together with other believers to pray. And if you do this, you can know that you are pleasing in God's eyes and that what you have done is a good, a good work. Now, in verses 8 to 15, Paul gives specific commands for men and women on God's will for their conduct in the church. I've titled uh, this message this, uh, this evening, Godly Conduct in the Church, Part 1, because there are a number of things Paul is going to, to tell us uh, that relate to our conduct. This section is a battleground, as you'll learn and as we'll look at it, for many who are... Uh, you know, you know, feminists in churches, egalitarianism, churches who endorse women pastors, they make scruples about this and, you know, how this is no longer applicable to the church today. And we're not going to uncover all the, uh, all the arguments, but we will seek to understand exactly what Paul is saying and how it does apply today in our church, in all, in all churches Those who find uh, issue with this passage and balk at what it says uh, either try to reinterpret the text or argue that these commands are bound by the time and the culture in which Paul was writing and are no longer applicable today, at least in the way that it plainly reads. But the fact of the matter is that we believe God has given specific examples of men of how men and women are to demonstrate godliness in all ages, not just the first century. So this evening, we're going to study um, verses 8 to 15 in, 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 in its first part, beginning with verses 8 to 10. And in verses 8 to 10, Paul instructs first men and then women on how they are to conduct themselves. Listen as I read those verses to you this evening. Beginning in verse 8, Paul writes, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Now I want to call out uh, the outline of of, uh, Paul's uh, writing here from the very beginning because it can kind of get confusing as we look at the text and and try to figure out what exactly is Paul commanding us to do. What is his point, and uh, how is he building his argument? And this is uh, what I want to draw your attention to right now, and that is that Paul is telling men that they are to pray with holy hearts. Men are to pray with holy hearts. And then as he turns to women, he is going to teach them and command them that they are to prioritize two things in their conduct in the church first that they are to adorn themselves with appropriate or modest apparel and secondly and even more importantly really they are to prioritize good works above and beyond their external appearance really modest apparel is just one expression of good works the real pinnacle of it all is adorning themselves with good works one way in which they do that is through how they dress themselves how they appear in public and in the church setting. So as we said, men are to pray with godly conduct, women are to adorn themselves with mod- modest apparel and good works as an ex- as an expression of sincere inner godliness that arises from their hearts and and then is exuded through how they conduct themselves in the church. But let's begin with verse 8 as Paul addresses first the men in the church. Men are to pray, as we said, with holy hearts. Paul first command his uh, Paul's first command here is directed at men in the church. The verb desire here can uh, carry the force of an imperative. Just because he says, I desire, it's not really just simply a wish, like I, I hope you do this. It's, you know, this is my will for you. This is my desire that you do this. It shouldn't be... Uh, just interpret it as a mere suggestion, but as a course of action intended to follow. This is what I want you to do, so do it. We, as parents, you know, will say that to our kids. You know, I want you to do this. It's not just a suggestion. It's The intention is that you follow up and, and do what you've been asked to do. The therefore uh, that we see at the beginning of verse 8, after where he says, I desire indicates that these instructions function as a conclusion to the previous verses. Paul says all these things about praying for men, and then he says, Therefore, I desire that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So it functions as a conclusion to the first seven verses of the chapter, as well as, I think, also as a transition to the specific commands for men and women in verse 8 to 15. It's kind of a hinge point between what he has just said and what he's about to say. Now, Paul's instructions concerning prayer is directed specifically to the men in the church. Doesn't men does not mean that in one sense this doesn't apply to women at all when they pray, but again, the focus is first men and then women and how they are to conduct themselves. We first note that this practice of prayer is applicable to men in all places or everywhere. It applies to to every man in every place. Now, what does he mean by everywhere? Well, I I take this to refer to every place that Christians assemble to worship. Every place of worship. Everywhere that Christians come and and worship in a corporate and assembled manner in those places, men are to pray in a way that is holy and upright. And we'll look at what that exactly means here in just a moment. It is God's desire that men lead the prayer or lead the church in corporate prayer when we assemble to worship. And we see that often in Sunday morning. Pastor typically is the one that leads the pastoral prayer, but another person could get up here and pray as well. But we've put the focus upon men leading in that kind of way because it is a form of leadership and a form of teaching, especially on a Sunday morning where the main priority and focus is the teaching of God's word, unlike a Wednesday evening where we do have a time of studying God's word and we do prioritize that. But it's really a a time of prayer in a a gathering to, to pray together. And so it doesn't quite emphasize that leadership kind of focus that a Sunday morning might So I say this does not mean that women can never pray when men are present. Otherwise, what we do on Wednesday night would not be appropriate. But um, the point in this section is that women should not be exercising authority over men. So we would not have a woman lead the church in prayer on a Sunday morning where the primary purpose of this gathering is to be taught. This does not seem to be an appropriate time for women to be speaking publicly to the church. But uh, we'll look more into that topic of women in authority next time when we look at verses 11 to 15. All that to say, then, the focus here is men praying in a public kind of sense in the church and that when men pray, they should pray in such a way whereas they're lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Paul's concern is establishing the manner in which men are to pray in the church. Now, what does the Bible mean here when, they, he's, uh, when Paul writes that men are to pray lifting up holy hands? Lifting up holy hands. The phrase is symbolic in nature, not literal. Paul is not talking about literally lifting up our hands, but rather it's symbolic in nature. I say it this way, Paul is not emphasizing the posture of the hands, but the posture of the heart. Let me say that again. He's not emphasizing the posture of the hands, you know, lifting them up, literally, but the posture of the heart in prayer. We don't make a big deal about the posture of a person when they're praying, except that, you know, we may typically close our eyes and bow our heads in order to mitigate distractions around us or being a distraction to someone else. And I do think that bowing of the head also does symbolize a sense of submission to God as well, as if we're standing before him, you know, in a humble state. But more significant than our physical posture in prayer is praying with a pure heart, with a holy heart. The holy hands then here uh, represents a holy life, a heart that is cleansed from sin it's without, it's without anger, it's without dispute, it's at, without wrath. Paul is, is instructing against the practice of men praying who are harboring unconfessed sin in their lives. Paul expressly uh, uh, tells, tells the men that they are to pray without wrath and without doubting. Without wrath and without doubting. The word doubting, um, in my mind, is not the greatest of translations that we find. I think, uh, really, the original Greek, if we were to translate it, would be something more like disputes. So they are to pray without wrath and without disputes or without dissension in their hearts. Uh, The same word is used in Philippians 2.14 and more accurately translates that word as disputing. The angry and, uh, the angry kind of demeanor and disputes may have been a result of the false teaching, which we know from chapter one created dissension in the church, created division and disputes. And so perhaps, you know, the men are arguing about things. They have, you know, about speculative things, things that are important. And then they walk up before the church and they pray as if nothing's wrong, seeking to, you know, pray on behalf of the church. And that's not a right manner in which we ought to pray. The point is we shouldn't be arguing and disputing in the pew and then pray in the pulpit and expect God to be pleased with the one praying or with even that prayer itself. Peter warns uh, husbands in 1 Peter 3.7 that the failure to live with their wife in a God-honoring way would result in their prayers being hindered. I think the same principle applies in this uh, passage as well they are to pray with pure hearts not with anger you know in their heart not with dissension amongst the brethren another implication is that we are to be united in prayer so if we're harboring wrath or or we're allowing dis- disputes to run a, run abound in the church then uh, we're not praying with unity when a brother is praying though he is the one speaking, we understand we are united with him in prayer. And, you know, oftentimes we express that even verbally through an amen or, you know, as someone's praying because we're united with them as if we're praying along with them in that prayer. But how can we actually do that if there's dissension, if there's disputes, if there's anger in our hearts? If there's contempt between one brother and another, that unity is disrupted, men, Take seriously the practice of prayer and ensure that when you pray, it is with a pure heart. If it requires you to go aside to that brother and say, I have this dispute, you know, forgive me, let's work this out. I don't want to have anger in my heart. Lord, you know, I confess that to you. Do that before you take up the practice of praying, especially in this public setting in the church. And when you embrace that mindset, you are expressing that holiness is a priority in all areas of life, including prayer. So, Paul first instructs men that they are to pray with holy hearts, without wrath and dissension or disputing. Paul then turns his focus on women in the church in the next few verses, and Paul draws a similarity between verse 8 and 9 to 15 when he states, in the same way or in like manner also. Now, what exactly is that uh, comparison or that similarity that he's drawing between uh, his command to the men and then his command to the women? I think that similarity that Paul is referring to is his command for both men and women to conduct themselves in a proper manner. He's obviously, the focus is two different things. One is prayer, the other is, you know, their apparel and and good works. But the similarity is that they are to to, uh, conduct themselves in an appropriate and proper manner. In the same way that men are to conduct themselves with holy hearts and and godliness, so also women are to conduct themselves in, in an appropriate manner. In the same way that men are to pray with Holiness in an appropriate way. Women are to adorn themselves in a proper and appropriate way as well. And Paul is going to, to explain what, he, uh, what it means to dress properly and why it is so important for women to submit to these commands in verses 9 to 10. Paul says this, let me just read it again, in verse uh, 9. He says, "...in like manner that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation." not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now, we said earlier at the beginning that there are two things that Paul is emphasizing. One is that women are to adorn themselves with proper apparel, and secondly, with good works. First, uh, we'll look at this idea of adorning oneself in appropriate apparel or modest apparel. Paul is uh, commanding women to dress modestly, but this is not necessarily his true emphasis or his only emphasis. It's not simply on uh, how they should dress, but that they ought to prioritize godliness in their life above and beyond external appearance. How do I come to this kind of conclusion? Because Paul says so himself. Look at verse 10. He says, Uh, But this, that is, you know, how they are dressing themselves in a modest way, is uh, something, is that which is proper for women professing godliness. A woman dressed in modest apparel and using her time and finances and gifts to do good works is outwardly expressing her profession of godliness. There are women who profess to be godly, that is, showing reverence to God, fearing God but whose public conduct does not uh, fit her claim to a godly, pious life. We often talk about the profession of salvation, but how often do we talk about a profession of godliness? To any woman who has an inner desire to express her reverence to God, Paul is telling you how you can express your devotion and fear of him in a very tangible way here. Maybe you never thought of how your dress and conduct prove or undermine your profession of godliness, but let me say it this way, it's time that you do. Paul is giving us very tangible ways in which it uh, reflects your profession of godliness. So I encourage you to take seriously God's command to adorn yourself in a manner that is reverent to him. Proper adornment on the outside reflects a properly adorned heart. Now, Paul tells us uh, that in verse 9 that women are to adorn themselves in appropriate or, or proper apparel, and he tells us what that looks like. He says uh, it is to be with pri- uh, propriety and moderation, or um, the ESV puts it this way with modesty and self control, or uh, the NASB puts it with. As modestly and discreetly. And these two qualities are virtues that are to characterize the way a woman dresses. The idea is that women are to dress in a manner that is not distracting from the purpose of worship. That is why they have come together in the church setting, is to worship, and so nothing should distract from that priority and that purpose. The way a woman dresses. We know it can be a distraction to men if, they, uh, if what they are to wear is not modest. Of course, you know, there's the argument, well, you know, men just need to keep their eyes down and you know, keep to their business. True enough, men are to keep watch over their hearts. But uh, women, you know yourself that what you wear can be a distraction. And it ought not to distract from the focus of worshiping God. Women are to practice moderation or self-control. That is not flaunting themselves, their expensive clothing, or jewelry or braided hair, or their natural beauty even. Dressing modestly requires good judgment. If you are married, ask your husband whether he thinks something would be immodest or a distraction to others. Use him as a gauge. And husbands, (laughs) make sure that you, you desire them to dress modestly before others. If you are young and single, perhaps you're a teen, and then you know, ask your mom or ask another godly woman in the church whether or not something that you have is modest. Ask them, you know, does does this appear to be flaunting myself, or is it a reflection of of a desire to to be godly and so and show self-control in what I in what I wear? Of course Maybe you're young and you're, you, you're ready to get married and you want to you know be attractive in, pure, in appearance. You impress maybe a young man. Well, Peter tells us that the internal beautification is far better than external appearance. The kind of man that you should want would recognize that as well and not be looking just at the outward appearance, but the in, inward appearance as well, what, is, what flows out of her heart. And so don't dress to allure him in that way. Dress your heart, adorn your heart in such a way that brings glory to God and and emphasizes your desire and and claim to godliness. Now, maybe you're looking at this and scratching your heads when you see that Paul says and forbids women from adorning themselves with braided hair, fine jewelry, and costly clothing. You know, he says we're to do it with with modesty and self-control and not with these things. But you maybe scratch your head and say, "Well, you know, I've braided my hair. <laughs> I uh, I have a nice ring on my finger if I'm married that my husband bought me, and of course I should be wearing that <laughs> to show that I, you know, I'm I'm wedded to a man and I'm you know I'm not for the taking. So what do we do with this? The pro- the prohibition against braided hair or expensive jewelry or clothing prohibits a gaudy, showy display, not normal attention to neatness and good taste." You can wear that ring and you can wear your hair in a way that is not flaunting yourself, not trying to draw attention to yourself, but in a way that's neat and and good tasting. It doesn't mean that everything you wear must come from goodwill or the Salvation Army, though that's not bad, and I find things there myself, but that's not the point that it has to be drab in appearance. You can, of course, wear new things, but it shouldn't be for the purpose of drawing attention to yourself. So can you wear your hair in a braid or wear that ring or that new piece of clothing? I say yes, if I can ease your conscience in that way. We talked about the conscience yesterday in men's prayer. But in one sense, women should be indifferent about this whole matter. They shouldn't be spending so much time thinking, what am I going to wear today so that you know, uh, you know, I can you know, make others notice me and draw attention to myself? They should really be indifferent about that. Put on what God has given you, the good gifts that God has given you. Do it in a modest way with self-control, and then go about your business of doing good works, not placing the emphasis on what you wear. Now, when Paul talks about this uh, idea of not dressing in a way that, you know, draws attention to themselves by putting on fine jewelry and costly clothing, um, this could also have a kind of cultural emphasis or to it, and refer to a style in which women wore their hair, you know, in enormously elaborate arrangements with jewelry kind of weaved, you know, in it, and so that, you know. It's just the first thing you see when they walk in the room. It's it's elaborate and it's it's drawing attention to themselves, and uh, you know, decorated with gems and golds and and pearls and things like that, gold jewelry. the the matter of the, the fact of the matter is this: if your time is preoccupied with beautifying yourself, with what you're going to wear, the clothing or jewelry, or you know, going to do up your hair all the time in order to draw attention to yourself but you're neglecting the the weightier matters of life, such as good works, this is what Paul is condemning. A humble spirit that's not seeking to draw attention to oneself is what is commendable, what is pleasing in God's sight. Now, as I said earlier, the, the way that a woman dresses is... You know a focus of this passage, but really the, the pinnacle of it all is that women are to adorn themselves with good works, dressing modestly. Of course, being one of those good works. Look with me at um, <clears throat> at verse ten. Paul, having said that we are to women are to adorn themselves in modest apparel, not or with modesty and self control, and not with these other things. But he says in verse ten, which is proper for women professing godliness with good works or another way of saying saying it is to adorn themselves with good works because this is proper or suitable or fitting for those who make a claim to be godly the adornment of a godly person is their good works not their clothing well look with me just for a moment at 1 Peter chapter 3 1 Peter chapter 3 beginning in verse 3 Paul, speaking to uh, wives in this passage, gives us a good example of what it means to adorn ourselves inwardly, as as a woman should do. He says this in verse 3 of of chapter 3, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, that is, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and and are not afraid with any terror. Peter's... Then, instruction here is that women are not to prioritize the external things, the beauty of her outward appearance, but to focus on honing her heart in such a way and, and, and transforming it in such a way that there is beauty that exudes from, out from within. This is true of women in the church as well as, as men, but particularly um, here in particular, Paul is speaking of, of women. What is fitting or appropriate for women professing godliness is not costly clothing, but good works. Instead of coming into church going for the wow factor by means of what you wear, make it your priority to be like Dorcas, who adorned herself with good works, who is known for her holiness and her desire to honor God. This kind of mentality and attitude is pleasing in the sight of God. Paul states that the adornment of modest clothing and good works is fitting for those who lay claim to being godly. In other words, these things are appropriate for women who profess godliness in their hearts. These women here in Ephesus were promising or laying claim to having a godly a pious life, but their priority upon their external appearance and lack of good works undercut such a claim. I hope that your claim to godliness is genuine. These claims should be validated by showing priority on spiritual adornment rather than external appearance. So I encourage you this evening to give more thought today to what you can do not what you will wear. Walk into church not waiting for someone to notice what you're wearing, but eager to express your inner adornment of godliness through your good works. Now, we see here that Paul calls women to do these good works. You might ask yourself, I've never really thought deeply about this, you know, that my life should be adorned by my modest clothing, but also by good works. So, you know, what can I do? You know, Paul here in verses eight to fifteen is talking about, you know, how I ought, as a woman, ought to be submissive in in the church, not be teaching, and you know, and you know, women get upset about this. You know, they want to have involvement in the church, they want to do things, and yet Paul is saying, you know, they're not to teach; they're to to uh, listen in, in quietness. So, what can I do? Maybe you have that genuine desire to express the inner adornment of godliness in your life through good works, but you don't know how to do that. Well, let me encourage you with a number of things here. There is plenty that women can do in the home and in the context of the local church that are good works. Women can minister to the sick, the dying, the mentally impaired, or the physically handicapped. They can share their faith share their resources, and open their home to strangers, missionaries, other believers. They can write, offer wise counsel to younger women, mentor, organize, administrate, design, plan, and come alongside others to encourage them. They can pray together. They can come alongside the uh, elders and deacons in difficult situations involving women or those needing a woman's perspective. They can minister to single moms, new moms, and abuse victims. They can bring meals, sew curtains, send care packages, and throw baby showers. They can serve in the kitchen at a potluck, care for the babies and toddlers in the church. They can tidy the church building. They can teach children Sunday school class or junior church. They can raise their own kids to to the glory of God, and they can embrace singleness as a gift from God. They can teach younger women how to love their husbands, be chaste and modest in appearance and behavior, how to be a good homemaker. We could go on and on. In other words, there are tens of thousands of things women can do in ministry as good works. There is no limit. This is what a woman should be prioritizing in her life rather than her external appearance. It is right. It is proper. Paul says it is godly. So men, as we close this evening, men, I encourage you with this. Ensure that you do not allow anger to fester in your hearts and refrain from disputes that could cause such anger. We do not want our prayers to be hindered. Women, adorn yourselves properly. The ultimate adornment with which Christian women should be concerned is good works. As we said, Paul is not only advocating modesty in clothing, but that priority, that is, time and energy and cost, be placed on inner spiritual adornment. A woman cannot claim to fear God and yet disregard what his word says about her behavior. Let us close this evening in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we consider what you have given us this evening in your word, Lord, may we all do our own spiritual kind of evaluation. Lord, there's, of course, a heavy emphasis and focus on women, but not at the neglect of, of showing that men are to also conduct themselves in a proper way. Perhaps it is um, we are men are more inclined to, to be quickly angered by something or to dispute about matters. Lord help us in that area. To be resolved to, to not only uh, pray with a holy heart, to, but always, but to always conduct ourselves in a holy manner. Lord, also we pray that uh, you would, um, Lord, that you would. You would have a, a work in the, in the lives of all the women here that they desire above all else to adorn themselves in a way that is pleasing in your sight, in a way that uh, validates and expresses the genuine godliness in her heart. Lord, we thank you that you have given us these instructions. May we heed them and obey them, demonstrating that we have not only simply made a profession of faith, but a profession of godliness, of reverence and fear of you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.